Genesis chapter 14. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to take them and turn with me. We'll begin in verse 17. We're reading down through the end of the chapter, verse 24. And we will do that right out of the gates. Thank you, my brother Luke, for leading us before the throne in worship. I was thinking about how you are a choir of voices. Asking the question, how great thou art. You realize that we will spend an entire lifetime and we will never, we will never fully comprehend the greatness of God. He's, he's, that, he's that far beyond us. I want to welcome every single one of you this morning to Big Woods. It is a joy to have you here, especially if it is your first time. I, I want to begin right out of the gate, and I want to read our text before we go to the Lord in prayer. Genesis chapter 14, we pick it up in verse 17. Hear the word of the Lord. <clears throat> it will sound familiar to you. After his return from the defeat of Kedileomar and the king's who were with him, the king of Sodom, went out to meet him at the valley of Shiva. That is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Ashkel, and Mamre take their share. Would you bow your heads and pray with me as we have work set out before us this morning with this text. Let's pray. Father, we do come before you, and we are grateful that we can come in the name and through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for your word that is perfect. It offers everything that we need for how to live life here in a, in a crazy and a complicated time. And now with this text open before us and read, I would pray, Lord, that your spirit would be unleashed within our hearts to ignite a a flame of fire, not, not just in understanding, but in action, not just so that we hear, but that we do. Father, I would ask for help personally. Just please, please help me. My words and my speech, may it all be for your glory. Father, I do pray especially for those who are listening at this very moment, whose, whose hearts are troubled, perhaps in, in turmoil. May you soothe and quiet and comfort and minister to them in a way that only you can. We ask this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Amen and amen. Okay, I want to begin this morning where we left off 
exactly where we left off last week. No, I have not forgotten what I said. When somebody's like, is, is, is Pastor Tim kind of losing it? Like, didn't we hear this before? Understand this. Yes, it is intentionally repetitive. Okay, just a bit. Why? We are learning the importance of keeping the big picture in mind. Which means what? There are many people throughout the pages of Scripture. There are shepherds and soldiers and priests and kings, princesses and poets. And there are what? Murderers and thieves, tax collectors and prostitutes. But they are all pointing a single direction and they are all telling a single story. We know it's true. Some are larger and louder than others. Remember this, as God chooses to progressively reveal more and more about himself, he chooses certain ones. And he, what? he makes a covenant or a promise with them. Thus they are what? These covenants are progressively revealing more and more about God's one redemptive plan for those who are one in Christ. Remember, Adam and then Noah were in the life of Abraham. There'll be Moses and David. Praise God that these covenants, okay, offer God's redemptive plan and they reach a fulfillment in Christ in the new covenant. Now, why is this important? Because you and I live in a world today that is filled with useless information. Okay, just this week, and I'm not alone here, just this week, this is the amazing information that has come across my desk, okay? And it happens to you too. Americans on average eat 18 acres of pizza every single day. Wow, that is fascinating. I so desperately needed to know that. I needed to know that a crocodile cannot stick its tongue out or that a snail can sleep for three years. This is the information that we are getting to us today. I learned this. It's interesting but useless. All knights used to be right-handed. I didn't know that. You know, reason is because left-handed people could never become knights because they were assumed to be descendants of the devil. And left-handed people, I learned this this week, left-handed people actually die on average before right-handed people. So I had to confess to my wife this week that I will never be a knight, honey. I'll never be a knight, and I'll probably die sometime soon, for all we know. <laughs> According to the information, we live in a world of useless information, and it is never, it is never like that whenever you open the pages of the Word of God. All of it is important. Therefore, what? We are concerned about accurate theology. Therefore, we must keep a constant view of covenant theology before us so that we are able to what? See and savor the fact that there is something. And more importantly, there is someone who is being revealed to us. And this someone is Jesus. 
Last week, the closing verses of Genesis chapter 14, we picked up the story of Adam, excuse me, Abram, following the rescue of Lot and his family who had been kidnapped in the famed battle of the Valley of Siddam. While Abram could very easily have left Lot, and probably most of us would have left him there. Why? Because he chose to implant himself dangerously close to the wicked city of Sodom. But he didn't leave him. He's kin. He's family. And we go to war for family. He saddled up along with his 318 trained men in a nighttime raid, defeated the enemies and brought back everything and everyone. And upon his return, in the midst of this party, this joy and celebration, we're introduced to this intriguing character, the king of Salem, Melchizedek, who is described as what? Priest of the Most High God, who, who blesses Abram, a fulfillment of Genesis chapter 12, and what we'll also see is Genesis chapter 15, and ultimately is a blessing to God himself, the possessor of heaven and earth, who is described as one who delivers your enemies into your hand. And he brings out the bread and the wine that we celebrated at the communion table just last week, reminding us that through the what? Broken body of Jesus and poured out blood that we as captives to sin can be set free. Well, we know little to nothing about this man, Melchizedek. We did learn that he was referenced again in Psalm 110, as Pastor Aaron read this morning, as, as well as in Hebrews chapter 7. And there's this repeated phrase, once in Psalm and five times in Hebrews chapter 7. And it's this repeated phrase that he's a priest forever. He's a priest forever, a priest forever forever and we quickly realize that this is not just some casual reference to a passing mysterious figure from deep in the annals of biblical history it's not just just another guy james montgomery boy says it like this it's it's here that abram the greatest spiritual personality in the old testament meets an unknown king who is greater than himself Dia Carson says what? That Melchizedek is the most instructive figure helping us put our Bibles together. Particularly as we will turn to the text in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 7. Turn your Bibles there. Hebrews chapter 7 speaks of this unique and superior priestly order of Melchizedek that takes us a giant step closer to understanding the big picture and far more importantly introducing us, what? To the great high priest, to the king of all kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. Just three verses we want to begin with in Hebrews chapter 7. Here it is. <clears throat> Again. The word of the Lord. <clears throat> Hebrews 7, 1 through 3. For this, Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. And to Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness 
And then he is also king of Salem. That is king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. This week I was listening to a message that was preached, and it was entitled, The Most Hated Christian Doctrine. pastor did an amazing job. And, and, he's, and he's quoting the Lord Jesus Christ, that we know this. Jesus says what in John chapter 15? If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. In John chapter 7, it says, if what? If the world hates me, they hate me because I testify about that, that works of evil that it does. So, so in a sense, the most hated Christian doctrine, in a sense, is simply addressing the fact that we are sinners in a sin-filled world. The most hated doctrine is the fact that we are sinners in need of a Savior. And this is not rocket science for us. We don't ever have to teach our children to rebel or disobey. They learn that on their own. This is the doctrine of what? It's the T and tulip. I mean, it is basics. It's total depravity, that we are a wreck in need of a Savior. And that's a tough message when we what? We know it's easy to fill up a church if you're going to move away from the doctrine of total depravity, the most hated doctrine in the Christian faith, most hated doctrine in the world. But we can't soft-pedal that. Matter of fact, it's truth. It's a real problem, and it is such a great problem that means what? There's not going to be some quick, easy, or ordinary solution. It's such a great problem that we need a great Savior. Therefore, you will hear this all the time. Get up in the morning, stare yourself, okay, at the mirror. Don't stare at yourself too long. The messages are not going to be centered on you because the word of God is not centered on you. You're not the star of the show. We will always focus the attention on what? We have a great problem. Therefore, our attention will go towards a great Savior. So as we learned this morning about Melchizedek, he is an Old Testament type of Christ in the New Testament. As we learn about him, we actually learn about Jesus. Two points I want to give to you this morning. The first one is this. We, we see here the significance of Melchizedek. And first off, right out of the gate, he actually foreshadows Christ's character. If you recall, and we read it a couple different times, that the name Melchizedek means righteous one. Or, or king of righteousness. And the title, king of Salem, literally means king of peace. Both of these qualities are prophesied about the coming Messiah. It wasn't that long ago, several weeks ago, we gathered at Christmas time to celebrate the incarnation. And we read about this one who is what? Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father. He is the prince 
of peace. There's that word. If you continue on in Isaiah chapter 9, it says of the increase of his government and of peace, there'll be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. That's Old Testament and we see Jesus. New Testament, what? 1 John chapter 2 verse 1 says that Jesus Christ is the righteous one. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 14, he is described as what? He himself is our peace. So what? The whole Bible, big picture, Old Testament to New Testament is telling us that Jesus is the sovereign one. He is the king of both, what, righteousness as well as the one who is the king of peace. And it's in him, not only as the bestower of that, but he is the one and the only one where righteousness and peace can be found. It's in him and only him where righteousness and peace can be found. Now, why is the message of the gospel important today? Hey, hey, look around us and listen very carefully to what's happening. We live in the middle of a world of unrighteousness. You don't have to dig too deep. And what? There are just angry people. There are people that are just, just, just spewing hatred, seething. There is injustice in our world. There is abuse in our world. Just, just, just within the last, what, couple weeks, we actually hear if children are not being used as human shields by the enemy, then they are what? They're actually being trafficked. They're being sold into people's hands. That's the unrighteousness that we see in our world. Therefore, what is needed? Righteousness. It's defined as that which is morally upright, that which is virtuous. Well, let's look at the subject. What about a world uh, in turmoil? What about a world of unrest? A world where there is conflict and war and bloodshed. What is needed? Peace, it's defined as a state of tranquility and quietness. A, a word that means free of disturbance. Do, do you see how Melchizedek foreshadowed the character of Jesus? He is the only one, truly the king of righteousness and the king of peace. We need Jesus in our world today. We also see that he foreshadows Christ's qualifications. Now here for a moment, you got to dig just a little bit deeper into the book of Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews says what? He's without father or mother. Or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Which actually means there's no priestly genealogy here. There's, there's no beginning to it, and there's no end to it. And, and I don't believe that this infers that Melchizedek is an angel, okay? Or I don't believe that Melchizedek was the pre-incarnate Christ, as some may speculate. Rather, what the author is doing here, 
he's using a well-known rabbinical method of interpretation from silence. He's actually using that which we do not know to tell us something that we need to know. What he's saying is that the Genesis account, we know this, remember the names that no one can pronounce, is filled with genealogical record. And what here we have nothing. It simply does not offer that information. There's no mention of his parents. We do not know when he was born. We do not know when he died, which means what? It doesn't mean that he wasn't human. Think about this. If one ends up on a coroner's table, and maybe this isn't the greatest illustration, but, but, if, but if there's one kind of lying out, and there's no what? There's no wallet in the pocket. There's no identification. There's no fingerprints on record. There's no known relatives to contact. They do not immediately conclude with the one that's lying on the table to say, must be an angel here. Well, apparently, He's an alien from outer space. No, we don't make that conclusion. We come to the conclusion that we say what? We don't know. We just don't know. Think about this. All Levitical priests had to trace their genealogy back to Aaron. So Melchizedek, with no genealogy that could be traced to Aaron or even back to Levi, is a type of Jesus, who is without priestly genealogy. Now, yes, Jesus did have what? Certain, well-known, well-recorded, clear, prophesied genealogy that could be traced back to what? The tribe of Sunday school answer, Judah, not Levi. Which means Jesus does not have any priestly Genealogy. The idea that's being stressed here is what? Like Melchizedek, Jesus' call was based on his being appointed as priest of the Most High God. It was not hereditary. It was not inherited. And finally, all Levitical priests served limited terms, which is interesting. People don't realize this. You realize that a, a, a person could function in the priesthood for only 30 years maximum but again Melchizedek like a type of Jesus there's no beginning and there's no end now why is this so important William Lane says it like this and I quote Melchizedek's sudden appearance and equally sudden disappearance from recorded history awakens within us a a sensitive reader the need for a notion of eternity. What eternity is like, we hear it and like we understand, like it, it's real, but eternity is really hard for us to grasp. We can't fully, there's no end, there was no beginning. It's hard to understand. So the author, in a sense, concludes what? Resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Practically speaking, a priest could enter the Holy of Holies once a year. Remember the Day of Atonement? And he would do it with great fear, great 
preparation, great respect to offer atonement. Which means what? If you can only serve for 30 years, you go in once a year, that's only 30 times that in a sense what sins could be atoned for. There's limits. Whereas Jesus lives in. He dwells in the holy of holies. He is constantly and faithfully and continually, what? Praying for us who are in so much more need than what? Just forgiveness from our sins for 30 times. We, we'd, be, we'd be cooked in a month. And yet Jesus is interceding on our behalf. Romans chapter 8, verse 34. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1. Later in Hebrews chapter 7, if we could read it, that Jesus always lives to intercede for us. And this is what I wrote in my notes right here in capital letters. Wow. I don't have to, I don't have to wait to the Day of Atonement for, for one guy to go in for the entire year for my sins to be atoned for. I can go just as little... Little, not little Michaela. Michaela was talking to the little ones that we go directly to the throne room in the name and through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is interceding on our behalf. Think about this. So we will be more holy so that you and I will be more righteous than we are. Jesus is is interceding on our behalf so that we will be more loving than we are, that we will extend more grace than we could ever naturally extend. And he's doing this without end, without any interruption. Wow. Not only do we see the significance of Melchizedek, but we see, secondly and finally, the superiority of Melchizedek. Go back again, just a little bit in our minds, and we read this, Genesis chapter 14, quickly, and we briefly saw what? We understood first the blessing of Abram, and then I, I talked about the fact, I'm keeping my word here, that we would consider the, the response, or Abram's response to the blessing. And this is important, because what's the response? Here it is. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. I was trying to find a polite way to say it last week when what? He had all the steak and potatoes that he needed. He didn't need the bread and the wine physically. Why? He was loaded. He was a wealthy man. He was very rich. And, and what? A tenth of everything, which translates in our world a dime for every single dollar. Now, why is this important? Go back to Hebrews, and I want to pick up where we left off. We are cruising on time here. We are, we are, we are doing great. Pick it up in verse 4. See how, how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers. Though these also are descended, 
from Abraham. But, but this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham. For he who is still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. I want to address this subject that's at hand here. And it's this idea, his superiority is actually reflected in his tithing. And, and you say, like, like, wait a minute, what is this? We were at war with Abram, remember? And there's bloodshed, and the captive are set free, and we're celebrating with, with bread and wine, and there's blessing, and there's good times, and now all of a sudden we get this phrase like, yeah, gave 10% and tithe. Yeah, pass the plate. Everybody loves to talk about that subject. Here it is. Here it is. Abram's first and natural response to victory. Abram's first and natural response to blessing is to give. Now, just, just stop for a moment on that. Think about this. He won. How do you think he felt? How'd you win? How did you, how did you feel when you won your first fight? And I'm like, oh, no, that's not like the best illustration here, okay? Because you're supposed to turn the other cheek. No, no, just pause on for a moment. Somebody strikes us, yes, we turn the other cheek. Someone strikes a loved one of, of mine. What well, we pursue justice. Do you ever, you ever like, don't, don't look like, you, like I'm some kind of alien, okay? Do you ever beat up the bad guy? Pastor Aaron and I were talking, like, like this very subject. I mean, he's, he's practically a choir boy. He's telling me about when he had to beat up the bad guy. It happens in our world. We're fallen people in a fallen world. When you beat up the bad guy, when you win, what happens? I'm going to get something. Where's the belt? I won this thing. You get something. You don't give something. So Abram is teaching us. He's showing us something. By offering a tenth to Melchizedek, he's acknowledging the superiority of Melchizedek. So yes, it was commonplace for a Levitical priest to collect tithes, to receive an offering, because what? It was a provision that was made by law, which means what? They had to do it. Praise God that we don't live under law, we live under grace. Well, but in this particular case, it was until... Abram was confronted with Melchizedek, a figure of such immense superiority that he automatically offers. It's a natural reflex to give a tenth. Melchizedek isn't collecting tithes from just anyone. Who's Abraham? Who's Abram? 
This is God's man. He's a hero of the faith. This is God's chosen. He is the father of the nations. He's the victor. And Abram is giving to the one who represents him, who delivers the enemies into his hand. As we read, in the one case, ties are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. Unlike any other priest, there is no end. There's no death listed here. Melchizedek represents a living, present, superior priesthood. Not only do we see tithing, but it continues, and we see blessing here. The other principle the author of Hebrews uses to ascribe and to establish Melchizedek's superiority is this formal, verbal, biblical blessing. Scriptures teach what? Of this exact scene. And I love when we kind of see it like in black and white in the Old Testament, and now we see it in like clear, like, like, like high def color. In the New Testament, it is beyond dispute what is happening here. There's no argument that the inferior is blessed by the superior, as we just read in verse 7. Old Testament blessing is often portrayed by what? You would take your outstretched hand and you would place it on the head of another whose what whose head inevitably would be lowered or bowed before the giver of the blessing thus signifying something what the inferior is bowed before the superior now again just just wait for a moment think about this abram has been spoken to directly by god like we've all heard god speak but it's not like a voice Okay, and, and what did God himself tell Abraham? I will bless you. And then he makes this statement that in you, all the families of all the earth will be blessed. Which means what? In many ways, Abram is the blesser. But in this particular context, we see what? That once again, he is being blessed by one who is towering over him. As Kent Hughes says, what? In mystic grandeur. There's tithing, there's blessing, and there's righteousness. Although Melchizedek was the king of righteousness, and we learned that he's the king of peace, he can never make someone righteous. He can't do that. He can never give someone. He was just a type of Jesus. As we gather to worship and to learn, we are gathered to remember who Jesus was and what Jesus Christ has done for us. And what it is, it is this one who is portrayed as, as the one who is the sum of all righteousness. The bestower of all righteousness. Jesus is the source of, of all righteousness. He is intrinsically righteous. And in the midst of all of that, guess what? He sees you. Just, just pause on that. Not to burst your bubble, but a lot of people don't notice you. 
Like you can like go right by and, and they're not all stopping to say, there he is. Like they're not doing that. And we have the one who is intrinsically righteous and he sees us. Thus what? Thus the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Big picture. I don't know if anyone, I don't know if anyone has ever brought the Old Testament and the New Testament together better or more thoroughly than what we are seeing right before us in the book of Hebrews. He wants us to see what Jesus is not only the perfect fulfillment of, of that which is foreshadowed in the Genesis account of Melchizedek, he is just better altogether. He truly brings what? The unique life and calling as he just responds to the blessing before us. Melchizedek knew that God gave Abraham victory in battle because God most high, repeat it, repeat it, repeat it, God most high, God most high, God most high rules the entire universe. Melchizedekian kingship is servant kingship. It points back to Adam's priestly kinship kingship established in the creation covenant and it also points forward as we'll learn what next week in genesis chapter 15 with the abrahamic covenant through the blessing of his family will come one will come one in perfect righteousness and peace who fulfills eternal roles of both the great high priest and the king of all kings and what tomorrow morning 6.45, 7, your alarm will go off. And this message, this time, it is like, in a, it's, it's way back there. And you're like, oh, I got a full day, I got a full week ahead of me. Who are we? Like who, who am I? And, and what does my week, what does your week entail? Peter writes and says what? That you, you remember this. You and me both together. We are a chosen race. And we are a royal priesthood. A holy nation. A people for his own possession. That, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so just pause on that. As that alarm goes off, you're going to think of this. That you are according to what it says, a royal priest. And we talked about, well, what does a priest do? What is the definition of a priest? One who, who, who what? Consecrates. It's a mediator between God and his covenant people who stand and serves. Primarily doing what? Three things. Sanctifying God's holy place, sacrificing God's offering, and speaking God's covenant. Therefore, what? Think about this. It all boils down to this. As Abram responds to Melchizedek, as Abram responds to Melchizedek, we are to respond to Christ, our superior priest king. Therefore, we live lives, what? A sanctifying life, which means that we are committed to live lives of holiness. And I love how, and I don't have the time to dive into it, I love how Abram said to this wicked king, this immoral king of Sodom, he says, I will not take a thread from you. I would not take a sandal strap or anything that is yours. Why? Because what does the holy have to do with the unholy? Nothing. We don't touch it. 
Paul writes what in 2 Corinthians 6? Touch not the unclean thing. People, I want you to think about what exists in your own home. The books that you're reading to your children, the movies that you're ingesting, the music you're ingesting. I want you to think about what you have stored in that, in that little idol that you hold in your hand. You sleep with it right there. I want you to think about anything that is unholy, and you know what it is. And be reminded that we are a royal priest, and we live holy lives, and we set ourselves apart from that which is unholy. What? We live a sacrificing life. Which means, hey, let's just call it what it is. It's going to cost you something. No, according to what Jesus said, it's going to cost you everything. Abram's role as priest and king is recorded that his first response is to give him a tithe, a tenth of everything. Every single what? Dollar, a dime is what goes to the Lord. Now, we understand that's tied, that's Old Testament law, and we don't live under that strict law. We live in age of grace, and so I think we work towards that. And what a wonderful goal to work towards. That's our responsibility. Which means what? And I hear this all the time. I just, you know, we're just, I just, I really can't afford to tithe. I can't afford to sacrifice. I can't afford to really offer because, like, I got a really, really expensive life going here. No, I tell people, and I'm very direct with this, you can't not afford to tithe. You can't not afford to offer something, anything. You can't not, what? You can't be a a royal priest and just kind of hold on to everything. No, we live sacrificing, giving, how desperate is our community around us? How much need is there for the gospel to go global? And you're stacking up more toys. I don't have the time. Number three, speaking. We live a sanctifying life, we live a sacrificing life, and we live a speaking life. I love this when Abram is sitting with the king of Sodom and he says, well, I, I've, I've lifted up my, my hand to, to the Lord God most high. What, what is he doing? He's in a sense, he's just planting a flag and he's declaring where his allegiance lies. I, I have committed my life to, what? to the one who's the possessor of heaven and earth, who delivers the enemies into my hand. He is boldly declaring, taking a stand. He is clearly speaking what we are called to do as royal priests, proclaiming the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. It means proclaim to speak. Less than 24 hours ago, if I may quote Kenny Hall, who told our men in our men's retreat less than 24 hours ago, and I quote, everybody has a responsibility to share the word. Amen. Which means you can't just, you just can't take, you have to proclaim. I was living in darkness. And now I live in, like, may we understand this is all because 
there's a really, 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 really big, there's a great problem in this world. But more than that, there's a great Savior. And he has been promised, and he lives interceding for us on our behalf, both now and forever. May we live in light of that truth. Father, we love you. And I, I understand, Lord, that there's just a lot there. And I would pray, Lord, that this would resonate through our hearts and our minds. I pray, Lord, that we would understand the importance and the responsibility that we have, just as, as Abram responded to, to Melchizedek. May we respond to you, the giver of life, the savior of life. Now bless us as we go. Give us the strength that we need to be obedient. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.